The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. I'm going to ask that you turn with me to our next section of Scripture that we look at, uh, Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning there, Romans chapter 3, we find ourselves in verses 21 through 31, but let me go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to try to deal with 27 through 31. We're going to come back to that next Lord's Day, but we're going to take a look at 21 through 26 this Lord's Day. And in fact, so let me go ahead and say, please be patient. Uh, May I ask a pastor's plea to be patient? This is such a glorious text. It's a foundational text. It's the girders that your superstructure of your life is built around. It's the pinnacle. Uh, This is a glorious text of Scripture. So we're going to take a couple of Sundays to work our way through 21 through 31, this morning 21 through 26. May I now also encourage you to come back tonight. Uh, brothers and sisters, this whole matter of biblical Christianity versus uh, or, and uh, progressive, contemporary progressive Christianity, we're at this sermon, and I didn't pull a fast one on you. I just uh, realized what I was going to have to do that uh, last Saturday and Sunday, and I was going to have to divide the sermon into two, the seven marks of political Christianity when it lays hold of a church. I've already given you five marks, what happens in the life of a Christian. But what happens in a church when it is led by a philosophy of ministry rooted in political Christianity? There are seven marks. But before I got to the seven marks, last Lord's Day, I wanted to take three very important passages of Scripture to lay the groundwork for our understanding of biblical Christianity, proper teaching, and then the false teaching of progressive Christianity. And so to do that, I did three texts. So I'm going to do something that I know, you know, the Lord's Day is a wonderful day for rest. Uh, and I've got a perfect way for you to take a Sabbath nap. Uh, would you go home? Would you go to your archives, last Sunday sermon on the website, and please listen in preparation for tonight. Listen to last Sunday nights if you weren't here or you want a refresher. You'll do two things. You'll be prepared for Sunday night, and it will conduct you right into your Sabbath nap in about 25, 30 minutes. All right? So there's, your, there's my invitation. And then let's come together tonight for this really important um, uh, development so that we understand. This isn't something just pastors and elders and deacons ordained. This is something every layperson. The Lord is sifting and shifting and sorting his church right now. And this is a key, a key issue that you, you and I need to understand from a biblical framework. So thank you for letting me share that with you. Look with me now in Romans 3 and verse 21. My goodness, I, how many weeks have I longed to be able to say this? But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, now, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of our God, it abides forever. By His grace and mercy, may His Word be preached for you. Please be seated. So I've asked you, in this text that has brought to a conclusion the last three chapters, we're getting to that statement I just read, all have sinned. Salvation is for all kinds of people. Why? Because, because all have sinned, Jew and Greek. And he, now Paul has brought us there. And as he has brought us there, this text not only brings to a conclusion what he has been teaching us in his exposition of the gospel of God, it launches us into the next two chapters where he will explain what he now introduces to us. Having given us the bad news, he now gives us the, the essence the essentials, the very core, what Luther calls the cardinal doctrine of the gospel, what Calvin calls the linchpin of the gospel. It's right here in these 11 verses. So I'm asking you to give me just a couple of weeks to work through it and to go through it with me because it's foundational for your Christian life. As I prayed, it's the girders that everything in your life is fastened around in the superstructure. It's the pinnacle of the Christian life. It's all right here. Let me put it this way. The Spirit of God, since the ascension of Jesus Christ, has been doing His work for the church of God to be established to accomplish its mission with its message through its God-ordained ministries. And the Spirit of God has done some very special things at special times. Obviously, after the ascension, when he empowered, when he met with the disciples and that first church of the 120 in Jerusalem, then you see Pentecost as the gospel explodes in Jerusalem. And then you see the repetition of Pentecost as it goes to Judea and Samaria, and then as it goes to the world. And we see this explosive movement of the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God lifting up Christ and bringing men and women to Himself, gloriously, quote-unquote, turning sinners right side up that turns the world upside down. And as that is being done, 
the church, uh, Satan begins to strike back, and the church has to undergo periods of of superficiality, of ritualism, of corruption, of unfaithfulness, of apostasy, and the Spirit of God reaches in through God-raised-up leaders who will be faithful to the Word of God to bring revival and renewal and gospel awakenings. Perhaps the most powerful of all since Pentecost has been the Reformation itself. And the Reformation got summarized as the reformers worked their way through the issues of the day in the, in the superstition of the church, the superficiality of the church, the sensuality that had invaded the leadership of the church, and what began to be do, done as the first century gospel, the apostolic ministry, was reclaimed, and the gospel with clarity, and, and the gospel with clarity was proclaimed, there were some statements that the reformers began to use and the next generation. You can remember them. We use them on Reformation Sunday, don't we? Now listen, to be precise, the reformers would love to use perhaps the most, other than Greek, the most precise language uh, that has ever been invented, and that's Latin. And they would use it. You can remember them. Remember them? Sola Scriptura. Sola, sola gratia. Sola fide. Sola Christas, sola Deo Gloria, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Well, the opening foundational statement, sola scriptura, that the scripture alone, not the culture, not the applause of men, the scripture alone, biblical magisterium, which is why please be here tonight because one of the most foundational issues is the deconstruction of biblical magisterium in today's errors, contemporary errors of progressive Christianity, to move from biblical magisterium to cultural magisterium. The Scripture alone is our only rule of faith and practice. Now, where does that lead you to? Well, a glorious reclamation of the foundational doctrine of all in the Bible, the gospel of God. That we're saved by sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by grace alone, sola fide, through faith alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, sola Christas, in Christ alone. Why? Sola Deo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. No boasting of men. Our boast is in the Lord, for it is in the Lord that we are saved, and by the Lord that we are saved, and through the Lord that we are kept. The Lord who has come for us by grace to save us through faith in Christ. This text that you and I are in, I've I have marinated in it. I have immersed myself in it. I've tried to drown myself in it. (laughs) Because it was this text that every one of those statements came from. Remember when we started Romans and I shared with you the role of Romans in Augustine? And then from Augustine to Luther? 
to Calvin, and then to Knox, and then to Edwards, and then to Whitfield. This is the text. This is the text that brought clarity. Sola gratia, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This was the text. This is where we have arrived. The Apostle Paul, should not be surprising to us, the Apostle Paul had his law degree from the school of Gamaliel. He had his credentials as a lawyer. He had spent his time in Jerusalem at Gamaliel's Law School. And, and you can see the lawyer's mind and his method that the Holy Spirit is using. As he has introduced to us the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And as he does that, he then moves in to this three-chapter section in which he, uh, he adopts the position of a prosecuting attorney. He brings your attention to a day that almost every single one of us try to avoid even thinking about, and that is the judgment day. The Bible says, it is appointed unto men once to die. There is coming a time when you get out of bed, you're not coming back to it. There's coming a day when you take a breath and it'll be the last one. It is appointed unto men once to die, then the judgment. And what Paul has been doing is on this day, he has brought to you, using God's Word from the 39 books of the Old Testament, He has taken time to tell you on this day of what will happen that day. And He has exercised Himself as a prosecution attorney. He is the prosecutor. And He is taking all of humanity, Jew and Gentile, all of humanity, and He is marching all of humanity before the bar of divine justice on that day. On that day when all will appear, the Bible says, we must all appear before the judgment seat. And when we appear on that day, He wants you on this day to know what's going to happen on that day. So so he has taken three chapters to bring all of us to that bar of justice. He has marched us in front of it as a prosecuting attorney. And he has now concluded, maybe the best way for me to bring this conclusion to you. Now remember, he's used nothing but scripture. He's used nothing but scripture to show us what will happen on that day when Christ is the judge, a holy judge, and we all appear before him and the burning gaze of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We think and fool ourselves to thinking they're secret, unknown, and I won't give an account. He's saying, no, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment, and on that day, this is what will happen. Have you all ever been watching a television uh, news program, and as you're watching a television news program, some 
individual who has committed a heinous crime has been captured, and now the district attorney comes before the cameras and says, I can promise you that we will prosecute this man or this woman according to their crimes to the full extent of the law. Well, just so you don't get disappointed, seldom does that happen. But on that day, it will. On that day, it will to the full extent of the law. And Paul has brought to us that day and the verdict, the indictment and the indicted, all. And he describes for us what's happened. I've tried to sum up everything we've looked at in the preceding chapters with four statements. Let me give them to you. Here's the first one. On that day, the indictment and the indicted, here's what you need to know. On that day, all of humanity will appear under the law if you're not in Christ. And we, and all of humanity, any and all who are not in Christ, on that day will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And the law of God, we've already heard two weeks ago, shuts every mouth. We won't have anything to say. Our guilt in thought, word, and deed will be displayed and obvious. We, all of humanity, is indicted before the holiness of God who made us for his glory, who sustains us and gives us our breath for his glory, that on that day, all will appear, and if you're not in Christ, then you appear indicted under the law of God. Secondly, all of humanity is under sin. All of humanity is under sin. Paul chose a very careful word. He didn't say all appear with sin or all appear um, having sinned. That's all true. But he makes a very important word choice. All appear in that day under sin, under the power of sin, under the penalty of sin, and under the gaze of a holy judge who says, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, and everyone will answer to that God for their sins to the full extent of the law and the holiness of God on that day. So all are indicted under the law. All of humanity prosecuted under the law is under sin. And all of humanity is defenseless. He has dismantled every possible defense strategy. The religion of irreligion by paganism in Romans 1, guilty. The man-made religion and its hypocrisy, guilty. 
People who have misused true religion thinking their embrace of true religion will save them when the point of true religion is to bring you to the Savior. Not true religion saves you. True religion takes you to the Savior and matures you for the Savior. But those who think the true religion, the privileges of it, and the presence of it will save them, he has pronounced to them guilty. All of humanity is defenseless. Every defense strategy he has dismantled. Fourthly, all of humanity is helpless and hopeless. All of humanity stands before the judgment seat of God and has no hope. God's justice is inflexible. On that day, it will be applied with righteousness. And we of ourselves have no hope. We're impotent spiritually. We're guilty legally. We have no hope. We have no defense. On that day, we have no options. On that day, there is no hope We have a legal problem. We have a spiritual problem. We are sinfully guilty, spiritually impotent, dead in our sins. And then Paul basically says in Romans 3 and verse 20, the prosecution rests. All have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. All are under sin. And then, amazingly, Paul in this epistle leaves the prosecutor's table, walks solemnly through the divine court of justice. He comes to the table of the defense with all of the helpless and all of the hopeless, all of the indicted, all of those sinfully guilty and dead with no options, no defense, no workable strategy. And he takes his stand there And then he utters these words. But now. But there is a hope. It's not in you. No flesh will be justified by the works of the law. Here we are anticipating the verdict of condemnation. No hope for the verdict, innocent justification. And he says to we who cannot be justified in ourselves, says, but there is a hope. There is a sure defense. There is a redeemer. There is a redemption, but now, now, 
No longer are we in the thousands of years of the promise of our advocate. No longer are we in the, no longer are we in the pictures and the presentations and the ceremonies and the prophecies that are pointing to a redeemer. But now there is a redeemer. But now there is a sure hope, a solid rock. There is one who can deliver you on that day. And now he is available this day at the present time. And then he walks us through the one sure defense. Look with me in that Romans 3 and verse 21. Look with me in that text with me just for a moment. But, but now, no longer prophecy, no longer precept, no longer symbol, no longer type. Now, now, in the present time, but now, not the righteousness of Harry Reader, not the righteousness of the sinner, which is no righteousness, our righteousness is like filthy rags, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It is not the law that has the power to provide this righteousness. It is not your works of the law that can have this righteousness, but there is one who has come in your place under the law, and with his work, you can be saved with the righteousness of God that's apart from your relationship to the law. It has now been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I love the old Geneva Bible of 1565, where in this translation, they use the the legal language of the day, which would be appropriate. It's just for many of us, it would go right by us. But here's the way they translate it. They translate that, that, that uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested now. It's been manifested now apart from the law. To wit, <laughs> that's the contract that every once in a while you sign and you never read. To wit, or in witness of this gift of God's righteousness. Now manifested, this righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and the prophets. They were the schoolmasters. They were the tutors. They were the teachers to teach you your need of a redeemer, your impotence in redemption, but your hope that is found in the redeemer that God himself, the lawgiver, would supply for those who are under the law. One that is apart from the law, the very one who gave the law is the one who will send the, the remedy for those who stand in violation to the law and under his judgment. So this law and prophets bear witness to it. And what is that? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is your hope. Not your righteousness, which is no righteousness, 
not a righteousness from the law by your obedience, but a righteousness apart from the law through Jesus Christ, whom you receive by faith. This Christ is the one whom you believe through faith in Jesus Christ. Who can believe? Any and all who put their trust in him. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Male, female, whatever your ethnicity, whatever the color of your skin, whatever your social standing, whatever your economic standing, it matters not. Why? Because all have sinned. All need a Savior. And there is only one who provides salvation accessible for all. And that one is Jesus Christ who died for this world of sinners to have the door open for their redemption. And this Christ comes. And you don't have to go become an ethnicity. You don't have to get better. You come to him just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that you come to him. There is no distinction for all who believe. Who will be declared right on that day? Those who on this day confess their sins and put their trust in Christ by faith. And thus are written in the book of life. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So folks, there's coming a day when you and I are no longer breathing and we stand before God. And on that day, we're either in Emmanuel's land, glory, or we fall short of glory, and because of our sins, we're under not the glory of God for eternity, but the wrath of God for eternity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But how are you saved? Look what he says. You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How are you saved? Through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. How are you saved? You have a mediator who has come in your place. You have a mediator who lived the life you couldn't live, who died the death that you don't want to die on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the one who buys us back, the one who pays the ransom. His, his ransom isn't paid to Satan. His ransom isn't paid to the world. He lays down his life as a sacrifice for us. His lifeblood pours out, and on the cross, all of the unmixed wrath of God for every sin, for all of his people, for all of eternity, all of their sins in word, thought, and deed fell upon him, and he drank the cup of the wrath of God, and he paid it for us. He is our 
advocate because he's our mediator. He takes our place. Would you remember three words for me? Sacrifice, substitute, satisfaction. He brings the sacrifice in our place. And he brings the sacrifice as a substitute. We call it a vicarious. That's why in Reformed churches, you don't hear anybody calling any leader vicar. There's only one vicar. And that's Jesus, who is our vicarious sacrifice. He took our place. I have three children. I now have the great joy of having ten. Thank you. Ten grandchildren. And I even shared with some of them, uh, one of them in particular this uh, yesterday uh, as we celebrated some birthdays about how much this text, how important I think it is in terms of what's going to happen on that day is determined by what you do now, this day, but now. And as I, but my three children, uh, God gave them to us and I praise the Lord for all three of them. I haven't always prayed to praise the Lord every day of my life for all of them, but overall, pretty much, and thank the Lord for them. Our first one, we had the way God intended us to have children. Cindy said, it's time to go. We got in the car. We went. I took the suitcase in. I took her in. I said to the nurse, please take good care of her. And then I went to the waiting room, which is where fathers belong, right there. And I went there, so I was out of the way and in nobody's way, and that's where I was. And then came the Lamaze movement. So the second one, I didn't have time to take the classes, but everybody said I needed to be in there. So I was in there in the labor room, which is a labor room. But when it started getting close, because I didn't have the credentials, then I had to leave. And thus my second child was born as Cindy gave birth. And then came the third one. And under the pressure of society and all of the young couples in our church, I went through the Lamaze. I got the credentials, so I was able to stay in the labor room with the pillow and the focus, breathe. I learned all of those things that you're supposed to say the whole time asking myself, what am I doing here. I am in the way, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then, uh, and then I was putting my hand under Cindy's head and I was rubbing sweat or not. She doesn't sweat. She glistens. And, uh, and I, uh, and then I, um, um, and then, but these pains got intense and tense and, and we had this machine that was attached to her and every time it would graph the labor pains for the doctor and the nurse and and uh, and I noticed that every time the graph the in, the labor pain came they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger and more often and more often and more often but right before they came there was this click click and after about 10 or 15 minutes when the click click happened I started getting this pain in my stomach and I was, it was really hurting. And I said to the doctor, what's happening? He said, oh, he said, that's your failed attempt uh, to take 
the pain away from your wife. That's what you're trying to do. That's a vicarious labor pain is what it is. You're trying to take the pain away from your wife. Well, that's not a great illustration, but that's what Jesus does. But now, Christ, the one that's the judge that day, left the bench and went to the cross this day and took away the judgment of God's wrath for your sin. Why? Grace. You didn't want him to. You didn't ask him to. He didn't need you, but he loved you, and he wanted you. And by grace, and you can receive that, not by works. You will do works for him, but you won't do works for your salvation. He did that on the cross. He is the one who has provided for you your verdict of innocent on that day. Justify. In fact, go back with me to the text. Look what it says. The, the redemption is in Jesus Christ, whom he put forward as a propitiation. Please tell me your Bible has that word there. If you, Do not buy a Bible that does not have the word propitiation there. Don't do that. And expiation. Those are words. Don't trade them out. These are so theologically powerful. Propitiation means an economic term, meaning satisfaction. When Jesus said, tetelestai, on the cross, it's finished. It meant the payment had been made satisfactorily. The substitute gave himself as a sacrifice, and it satisfied the wrath of God because of the love of God who sent Christ, who drank the cup of wrath to give you the eternal cup of life. The propitiation. Expiation. See, those are great words. They're all pictured for you in the Old Testament. Do you remember in the Old Testament, as you approach the Day of Atonement, you got this scapegoat? And the scapegoat was brought to the priest, and he put his hands on the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was led out of the walls of the city and sent away from the covenant people of God, sent away expiation Jesus is the witness that was bearing witness to Jesus Jesus the son of God became the scapegoat of God let me give you a big word please hold on to this word though let's learn a good word imputation imputation that's a that's a uh, accounting term means to credit something to someone's account when the priest lays his hands and confesses the sins of God's covenant people, the scapegoat then in this ceremonial picture is showing us what needs to happen. And that is God has to send a true scapegoat. This is telling us what needs, it's bearing witness to what needs to happen. And therefore the scapegoat was led out to take the sins away from us. God takes our sins 
from us as far as the east is from the west. He will remember our sins legally against us no more. He has taken them away outside of the city. And then the priest would lay hands of imputation upon the lamb who would then be sacrificed, telling us you need the lamb of God who with his sacrifice will make propitiation. He will satisfy But now, the scapegoat of God has been manifest. He takes your sins away. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, he makes the payment for your sins. And they are remembered to your account no more. How blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose transgressions are covered, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We, the cursed, are now the blessed because our curse was imputed to him. He took it outside the camp when he went outside the walls to Golgotha. And he took it away from us. Folks, there's a passage, and I've said this before, but sometimes preachers don't repeat things simply because they're lazy. They repeat them because it's so meaningful to them, and they want it to be meaningful to you. And I love 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I just love that text. Because let's see, hey, look, here's what it's saying. He, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who, here's Jesus, he knows no sin, clean record, the righteousness of God. Here's Harry Reader, his record, under sin, under the law, no hope, helpless, hopeless. He made him who knew no sin, imputation, to be sin on our behalf, substitute, vicarious. And Jesus at the cross Paid for those sins with his redeeming work for us. But the verse doesn't end there, does it? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So hell's doors are shut. Jesus paid for it. But heaven's for the righteous. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, here's Jesus' life, righteous. My sins are gone. Now, Jesus, this is two acts of imputation. My sin went to him. He paid for it. Then he gives his righteousness to me. And every time God sees me, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus I'm not only forgiven, I'm accepted. You see, sometimes you go to a Sunday school class and it says this. Listen, this is justification, just as if I had never sinned. Okay, I know what people are trying to help us, praise the Lord. That's only half of it. Justification is a legal term. It's the opposite of condemnation. Condemnation is guilty. 
Justification is innocent. Innocent, not just forgiven. Heaven's for the righteous. Where do I get a righteous? Mine's like filthy rags. Where do I get a perfect righteousness? The same one who took away your sin gives you his righteousness. You're cleansed by his sin and clothed with his righteousness. The other day from Ligonier, I got this great book. And I do not know who invented bubble wrap. But sometimes I'd like to choke them. Have you ever, some of these things get bubble wrapped. I can't get into it. I mean, they're so wrapped, I can't get to it. Bubble wrapped. But you do know, don't you? You're bubble wrapped to be delivered to glory. You're wrapped in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Having cleansed you with his blood, he clothed you with his righteousness. And oh, the praise and the glory that we give to God because of that, because of what he has done. I love that song we sing, my one, my sure defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, I need you. You're my defense and you are my righteousness. You are those things that I need. Or when we sing that glorious hymn from the Gettys, when, um, when we're told his, um, 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 oh my goodness, where is it? Here it is. I just love this. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I now live. Christ and him crucified. He gives me his righteousness. He takes his sin. And there is my sure defense. There is my defender. There is my hope, my sacrifice, my substitute, the, sac- the, the absolutely glorious um, work of Christ where in his active obedience he performed righteousness to take me to heaven. And in his passive obedience on the cross, he received my sin to pay for it so that I could have everlasting life. Here I am. The, the prosecution rests. I am in the valley of despair, helpless, hopeless, with no defense, no options. From whence cometh my help? I look to the mountains. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord. I am not looking at Mount Sinai. I am looking at Mount Calvary. There my help comes from the Lord that I might be everlastingly saved to his glory. The good news of the gospel for helpless and hopeless sinners is that the power of God has provided a righteousness of God in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. All of that in these verses that we just read. That God, let me just finish the last, the last verse. That God might be just and justifier of those who believe in Jesus. Look at that last, that God might be just 
and justifier. Just put it this way. How can the unjust, and we'll finish with this, how can the unjust be justified and God still be just? How can the guilty be declared innocent? I mean, even our English jurisprudence does this. Notice our courts never give an innocent verdict. It's always this. Not guilty of the charges or innocent of the charges. Do you know why we don't allow? Because Christianity informed our judicial system. There's nobody innocent. The trial is to find out, are you not guilty of the charges or are you innocent of the charges? But when you get to the divine bar of God's justice, you can hear this verdict. Innocent. Your sins removed. You're redeemed bought back. His righteousness clothes you. How can the unjust be justified and God be just? How can the guilty be innocent and God be holy? How can the condemned be cleared and God be true? How can those who are all wrong be called all right and God still be righteousness? Here's how. But now in Christ. So there's your takeaway. Let me just end and close in prayer where I began. But now, this day, we are under sin, helpless and hopeless if we are apart from Christ. But now, this day, we can be declared innocent. No condemnation, justified. In Christ, by grace, through faith. But now, where are you? On that day, on that day, and that day's coming, there is coming a time, and I do not know when, man does not know his time, you and I will get out of bed and not come back to it. There's coming a day we'll take a last breath. And on that day, we stand before the bar of divine justice to be prosecuted to the extent of the law under the absolute holiness of God, which cannot be compromised. But this day, this holy God has made a way to be just and justify you through his Son, who takes your place and gives you his righteousness by grace through faith. So what will you do this day? This day, this moment, right now. You say, Pastor, I've done it. Praise the Lord. Can I tell you what will happen if you've done that? You will be filled increasingly with the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, not peace of mind. Forget that. Peace with God. Peace of God. You'll be filled with the joy of the Lord. You will, be, you will be inoculated against all these manipulative agendas through all of these social medias and all of the stuff that political, sociological, you can be inoculated against it because of him who is in you and you are in him. And his joy is yours. His 
His triumph is yours. And in Him, your Redeemer, you're redeemed. But if you're not, you're a pawn of the world, still looking for help where there is no help and hope. There's only one, and that's Jesus. So on that day, to hear innocent, this day, come to Christ. Don't you love the thief on the cross? Praise God, there's at least one, there's only one, there's one deathbed conversion, but only one, lest any of us be presumptuous. Can you imagine when he gets, you know what Jesus said? Today you what? He confessed he was a sinner. He put his trust in Christ. What did Jesus say? This day you will be glory. Emmanuel's land. You'll be with me in paradise. Can you imagine when he gets there and somebody might say, well, were you baptized? Nope. Uh, did you know the shorter catechism question on justification? No, I hadn't gotten that one memorized yet. Have you read through the Bible yet? No. Um, do you have your Sunday school pick? No, I don't have that. Well, how do you expect to get in here? The man next to me on the cross said, today, I'll be with him. My hope my sure defense is Christ, who is my righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our moments together. Please, Holy Spirit, would you speak to the hearts of any and all that are here? Please do not let them put off this day that they will be found unclothed on that day. But this day is the day of salvation. And for those who have known you, would you fill us with such joy that we will not be deterred by the world from your mission, your message, and your ministry. We will be filled to overflowing for Christ. And if he is lifted up by his people, he will draw all kinds of men to himself. But Father, anyone here that has not yet come to Jesus, may this day they be ready for that day and set the groundwork for every day filled with glory instead of falling short in despair and judgment, lifted up in redemption by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, our sure defense, our righteousness, Christ. Brenda, we're going to give the benediction, but um, if you would like to pray with someone today, either your walk with the Lord or a commitment to the Lord, there are those who, as we stand to sing, will make their way here to the front, and you can make your way to speak with them personally and confidentially. Please take advantage of this. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.